0: Assalamu wa rahmatullah, this is Abdurrahman and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Roots Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org sustain. We really appreciate your contribution, we appreciate your prayers, and we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. This is your brother Mikael Ahmed-Smith here letting you know that today's podcast was sponsored by Helping Hand for Relief and Development. Helping Hand is a leading Muslim nonprofit organization that has a top star rating by Charity Navigator. Over the years, I've had the privilege of working with them and they've helped people from over 80 different countries around the world. They've worked for disaster relief and emergency relief in Palestine, Myanmar, and many other countries—Kenya, Somalia, Kashmir, Pakistan, and Haiti. To learn more and to be involved in helping the lives of other people, visit their website at hhrd.org. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa wa Welcome home, everybody. How's everyone doing? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Good, good. Um, so first, mashallah, we got obviously a little bit of a crowded space tonight, so try to make space for everybody. Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran that you make space, Allah Ta'ala makes space for you. So just try to make, you know, a little bit of room. What's up? In this, there's space over there. Yeah, so if you have any space that you want to provide, in the Nook area over there by Sohbah, you can spread out, inshallah. Um, Continuing from last week, our session on the prophetic biography of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allah Ta'ala, make things easy, inshallah. Um, We have a couple things that we talked about last week. So I wasn't able to get through (laughs) everything that I wanted to, but the good news is that we were able to really, inshallah, uncover a lot of amazing gems from just last week's session. So the first point that we walked away with last week was that when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi arrived to Medina, right, he arrives to Medina and he's riding on his camel and everyone is sort of like calling out to him, beckoning to him to, you know, come to stay with them. And each family had this like tribal, uh, you know, system and they were calling to their tribe. They were saying like, come stay with us. And what were the reasons why they were trying to, how were they trying to convince the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi What were the things that they were sort of like? Yeah, so number one was like we have cash, like we're, we're wealthy, our family's wealthy. What else? Yeah, power, status, numbers, and then weapons, right, so that we can protect you. So they were trying to essentially play upon the very human attraction to like things that, you know, w- whether it's wealth, uh, property, and also power. And the Prophet ﷺ was not uh, tempted even in the least bit by these people and their their beckoning. They, he wasn't that's not what, what's interested him. And so he would they would kind of sort of call to him and while calling to him they were trying to almost like pull the camel into their home. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi would tell them gently, like, just leave her, let her be. She's being guided. Right? She's being commanded by Allah and where to go. So, you know, where you're pulling her is irrelevant because Allah Ta'ala is commanding her where to go. And this was a huge lesson. This was a huge moment for these people because they had been accustomed to humanity and leadership and, you know, human leadership as being people that are tempted by the same thing that everyone else is tempted by power and money and, and status. And the prophet saw some the first thing he does when he shows up is he completely flips the script on them. And he shows them that part of being spiritually close to Allah is that you rely upon Allah. You don't rely upon wealth. You realize that Allah is the provider. You realize that humans don't provide God provides. Right? You realize that status with people is irrelevant if someone doesn't have status with God. Right? Allah Ta'ala says that, in That the most honorable amongst everybody are the ones who have the most God consciousness. So it doesn't matter if you say our family has honor because the Prophet is interpreting honor as those who are closest to Allah. And then obviously protection. Who can protect you if God wants to make you vulnerable? And who can attack you if God's protecting you? So he's basically like reorganizing the spiritual psychology of this entire city in this one moment. It's very powerful, and he's telling these people that you know what, this is something that you're going to have to learn. And even more so than I'm, that I'm being tempted by any of your offers of wealth and power and status and whatnot. This camel, this camel is the one that's going to decide where I'm going because Allah Taala is guiding it. Allah is commanding it, and then the camel ends up in front of the house of Abu Ibn Saudi and we'll talk a little bit about how the camel sort of it was interesting. The narration said the camel sat, then the camel got up, and the camel turned around and sat. And again we talked last week about how the hadith is so explicit. It's so specific. And and normally if you were telling somebody a story, you would instantly erase that part because it feels redundant. You know, if you were telling somebody that you went to a restaurant and we got seated, let's say that you sat at one table and then you realized that that table wasn't comfortable for everybody, so you got up and moved to another table, you wouldn't really include that part in the story, right? So you tell her, what did you eat? Oh, we went here. Oh, how was it? It was good. We sat somewhere and then we got up and sat somewhere else. That's, it, it's not really like, you know, you wouldn't include that. But when it comes to hadith, because you wouldn't include that because to you it's irrelevant. But when you're talking about the messenger of God, everything's relevant. When you talk about his life, everything matters. Every point matters. And he knew this. He knew that there would come a time in which people were writing down his, his lessons and his teachings and his words. He was aware of this because Allah told him this. And every single moment mattered. So in a moment like that, one of the lessons that we take, why would the camel come and sit and then turn and sit if it virtually accomplished the same thing, is because when it comes to our belief in destiny, right, why things happen. What happens, how they happen, and why they happen. We believe not only in the predestiny, in the predestined origin of, of things happening at, the, at a place, but also when they happen, right? It's almost like there's two axes. We believe that things happen for a reason, but we also believe they happen at a time for a reason. So I might be asking Allah for something, and that thing might end up happening, but it's not happening on my timeline. Right? I might be asking Allah for something, and I might be given the runaround for like 72 hours or six months or one year or five years, and I might wonder to myself, like, why did God not grant it to me the first time I asked for it? Like, why didn't he give it to me three days ago? What's so powerful about three days later or six years later or ten years later? Like, what? What's the difference? But if you think hard enough and if you reflect hard enough, you'll realize that there was an, an, a maturation process. It's like getting fruit before it's ripened. So you're asking Allah, and Ibn Ta'ala, he beautifully expresses this. One of the Islamic scholars, he beautifully expresses this. He says, don't ask Allah on your timeline, ask on his timeline. Like, ask for God, ask what you want, but don't ask and say, God, I need it by this date. Don't give Allah a due date. Ask Allah to give you what is best for you, when it's best for you. Because there's a chance that you could get what's best for you, either early or late. And because the time is off, it's no longer what's best for you, right? Because time matters. So the camel going and sitting and then turning, right? And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't get off on the first time, but the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi waiting and then turning, there's a wisdom in that. There's lessons in that. The second thing that we took from last week was that the Prophet Sallallahu the way he interacted with people, he had like a social mission statement. You know how like everyone, like your company or your the company that you work for, they have like a mission statement, Many of you probably don't even know it. It's probably just make money, right? But what is the mission statement of your company? Ultimately, everyone has a guiding principle, right? So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, one of the things he did was he gave us guiding principles for how we interact with God, with each other. And one of his social guiding principles, like one of his you know, sort of values that he had socially was that he always wanted to maintain the dignity and honor of people right? He always wanted to, to never displace people's honor or dignity. And he also didn't want to see it being displaced in front of him or d- see it happening and not do anything about it. So how he interacted socially was he tried his best, right? He did his best to make sure that the people who are around him, they never felt like they were nothing, right? Like the people who spent time with the prophet also, they walked away feeling like a million bucks, they felt like they were walking on, on clouds because that's just how he interacted with people. So that should become one of our guiding principles. We may not be able to be like the wealthiest people in the world that can help everybody with our money. We, ne- we may not be able to be like the most well-connected that can like set up people with like different networks and like, oh, I can hook you up here. I can. But you know what everyone can do? We can give people honor. You can dignify people. It doesn't cost money. It doesn't really even take that much time to be honest with you. But giving people dignity and honor, it takes a humble soul. And it takes somebody who sees the value in honoring people, right? And if you've ever been dishonored or had your dignity taken from you, whether it's in a board meeting or a, or a team meeting or whether it's in family, you know the pain that that causes. There's no money that can replace it. There's nothing that can fix that. It's such a painful moment. So don't be the person that does that. In fact, be the one that gives that peop- those people that honor and dignity. That was what we take from the Prophet ﷺ last week. And remember what Ka'ab said. By the way, I, looked, I, I re-looked at the narration, the hadith. We told the story of Ka'ab, how he said, shar, the poet, when after he got introduced next to the diplomat, bin who, by the way, was a Muslim. Like, he was also from the community. But he said, the poet. And Ka'ab said, he, in Arabic, he said, I will never forget that, that, those words. I'll never forget when the Prophet ﷺ said, shar. It changed his life. There was no moment happier for him in his life when the Prophet knew him. So the Prophet and we're going to continue now, he pulls up to the house of Abu Yubansadi. And when I read the narration, there's a reason why I'm showing you this picture, because when I read the narration, sometimes, again, when you're learning history, it's easy to project historically, it's easy to project your own circumstances. So Abu Yubansadi, for example, he had a two-story home. Everyone here was like, wow, mashallah, right? You got people here like, you know, working young professionals, living in an apartment. You're like, man, Abu Yubansadi was balling, Right? Like, he was probably from Plano. You know, like, he was, mashallah, doing well. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm trying to, you know, make it. You know what I'm saying? Splitting, be- splitting an apartment with somebody just to save. No, like, Abu Ghul he had a two-story home. But I want you to understand, again, like, the quality of the homes that they lived in. So there's actually, historic- it's very beautiful. If you go to Medina, if you go to some of the uh, Med- museums in Medina, Munawara, you'll see that they uh, they tried to, to restore. Let me actually Let me do this. They tried to restore some of the uh, like the physical elements of the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi So they showed, for example, like how much water he used to make wudu for prayer. How much water? You know how much it was? It was like um, it was probably a cup and a half of the twelve. It's probably like maybe 12, 16 ounces of water to make wudu. And if you've ever seen someone make wudu with that much water. It actually goes from being just like a thing to an actual act of worship. It's so intentional. It's so beautiful. The way that every drop is used and not wasted is like remarkable. I'll, I can actually, the next week I'll pull up a video of this Mauritanian sheikh. Mauritanians, they live like in the desert. It's just how they live, right? They drink out of like animal skins and they have a very, very like raw society, right? A lot of Mauritanians, especially the scholars. And I'll show you a video of him making wudu out of a bucket. And you'll see how intentional every motion, every movement is. And it goes from being just, like, a mundane thing to, like, an actual act of worship. Right? He doesn't just wash his face. He's actually, like, taking water with his fingertips. And, like, it's almost like what you would pay someone to do for you at a spa. You know? It's like, oh, this is called, like, a hydro, hydrodermabrasion thing. And it's like, no, it's called, we'll do it, man. We've had it for 1,400 years. You know? And so, do you see this, subhanAllah, it's beautiful. It's actually, it's remarkable. So, again... The, the, the standards are different. So when we say the prophet also make will do it, it wasn't like the slip and slides that we do now. It wasn't like leaving the, the, the faucet running while we're, you know, like kind of stand there or like, oh, I gotta wait for it to get warm. Right. You know, just stand and wait. Meanwhile, like half a gallon goes and then you start. That's not how it was. So when we talk about a two story house, we're talking about like this house. Okay. Is a two story house. And there's like a, like a little like hanging bed on one of the walls. So people can sleep on the floor, and then there's basically people like floating in midair right here, sleeping there. That's what two story means. Okay. So the hadith goes Abu Yubn Sadi, and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi lived with him for seven months. He stayed with him for seven months. He stayed with him there, and Abu Yub his 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 happiness was just through the roof. He was so ecstatic. He was able to host the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, know, he was able to have him in his life. And he every time. Would wait for him to eat, and he would always try to have stuff for him. I think about how you host people, right? Like the hospitality. So he was like going above and beyond for the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in terms of hospitality. And he said, when the Messenger of Allah stayed in my home, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he took the lower part of my house. So he stayed on the on the ground level. And he said, Umm Ayyub, right, her, her his wife. He said that we stayed on the upper level. Okay, so they basically hung out in like the the loft area. And he said, one night while we were going up to bed and the Prophet sallam, and eventually Abu Bakr as well was with him for a short time. He said, one night I realized something. That when I was laying my head down and I was looking at you know how I was moving around and crawling around and grabbing stuff and laying out my mattress and stuff. He goes, I realized that my feet were above the head of the Prophet And he said, this realization, it gave me so much Unrest. It gave me so much unrest that I imagined my feet being above the Prophet ﷺ that I didn't sleep that night. I didn't get a wink. Let me just let's let's explore this concept a little bit. Anyone here understand the, the 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 thread or the 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 culture of feet being disrespectful? You guys remember when the the Iraqi journalist threw his shoes at George Bush? And do, do you remember? I remember this specifically. I remember on news networks they were like a very interesting attack on the president because they didn't understand how to interpret it right they were like okay the guy obviously was trying to inflict some sort of pain or damage but he used his shoes even if he nailed him twice right George Bush showed a little bit of like movement there by the way he showed a little bit of mobility right he ducked and they even if they landed twice what would have been the impact like ow you know but really when you talk about culturally what that meant right? The power behind, not even, forget even landing. The landing the shoe was irrelevant, right? If y'all know what I'm talking about, it was irrelevant, you know? Throwing the shoe is actually what mattered. That's what was delivering that, the pain of the, of the Iraqi people. That's why people were, were so just absolutely taken by that. Those people who had witnessed the destruction that was caused to the Iraqi people, right? When they saw those shoes, it was a moment of like, uh, it was like retribution for them that you've, you've destroyed our entire country, you destroyed our civilization, we're going to disrespect you in, 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 on, on the public stage in a way that we know how, right? So when, you, when you're hearing this hadith and you're like, yeah, that's how everybody is. Like everyone's second floor is above their first floor, right? And we kind of, again, are processing it very, I want to say like hyper-practically. We're like, Well, practically, it's just the way it is. If you want a two-story home, someone's going to be on the bottom, right? And who are you going to do? You're going to make people that you don't like on the bottom floor, like, because you're under my feet? That's a hyper-practical. Again, that hyper-practicality, it comes from the society, a secular hyper-practical society. But imagine now that there are meanings to things. There's meanings to things. I, I remember going over to my friend's houses growing up, and uh, some of them calling their parents by their first name. I just saw people shudder. <laughs> like literally, like, God, could you imagine walking in the house calling your dad by your first by his first name? exactly well i can't say that on i can't do the motion you just did because i don't want you i don't want your dad to get arrested right okay yeah there might be a little bit of uh you know speaking with no words if you know what i mean you know could you but again again different culture maybe different different expectations different ways of showing respect uh i'll give you another example i I once was talking to a, a, a student of mine when i used to teach in school and Um, I was, you know, he was, he was misbehaving in class. I was, I pulled him out and I was reprimanding him. I was telling him like, what are you doing, man? Like you're, you're messing with everybody. It's not cool. Like there's a time to, you know, we have our first 10 minutes. It's a time to joke around. It's a time to have fun. And then we got to get to work. You're, you're delaying it for everybody. And he wasn't looking at me. He wasn't looking at me in the eyes. So then I was like, look at me when I'm talking to you, bro. Like, that's incredibly disrespectful. And he looked at me, he's like, what? And I was like, man, I'm about to get arrested right now like you know what i mean like he was like what like he was so shocked and then i was like what do you mean what and he goes you want me to look at you and i was like where are you like yes and he said i could never look at my dad when he was yelling at me and i was like wow and i realized he's right my dad's white so i could look at him when he was yelling at me but my mom is egyptian i couldn't look at her when she was yelling at me right so i grew up like you know neapolitan ice cream like i had to be Like different, in different scenarios, okay? And I remember that. So again, these different cultural practices, they come to life and they're very, very powerful in certain circumstances. So now that we understand that we're in the right mode, let's go back to the hadith. Abu Ibn Sari is like, I can't imagine that my feet are above his head, right? I can't imagine. There are even some scholars that we'll sit with now. Some Mashaikh and Ulamat will come and will sit with them and read with them or we'll visit them and they'll put their legs out because they're old and they have to stretch their legs and their knees. But you know what they do? What do they do with their feet? They cover it. They take their jubba off and they'll cover their feet because they're like, this is a reality. I have to stretch my, my, my legs but I don't want you to think that my feet are towards you so then I won't do that. Some of them will never face their feet or their back towards Mecca, towards the Qibla, out of respect. So they'll always like sit lateral. They're like parallel with the Kaaba, right? Like rear view mirrors or side view mirrors, okay? So this is something that is very important. So again, what do we take from this? He said that I wouldn't put my head, my, my, my feet above his head. So he goes, so I, re- I move to the side. He basically, I want you to imagine the Prophet is on the bottom floor. And so Abu Yuban Sari is above him and he's like curling his body around the outline of the Prophet Sallallahu So he looks down, he's like, okay, there he is. And they're like, he and his wife are basically creating like a shape around the Prophet Sallallahu so that neither of them are where? Above him. Above him. Don't, don't get caught up in the details. Just understand what they're doing. Okay? And then he says, We moved to the side and we remained awake all night. Finally, in the morning, when the Prophet woke up to pray, when he was finished, we asked him, Ya Rasulullah, is it okay if we switch? Is it okay if we switch? We'd rather you slept on the top floor and we slept on the bottom floor. The Prophet said, No. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's basically like, What's the deal? So Abu Yub, he clarified, he said, I swear by my mother and my father, which again, in the statement, you translate the English, you're like, what does that mean? It's like the greatest oath that a person can take before God. He said, I swear by my mom and my dad, right? That it is, it's making me feel nauseous that I'm, that I'm sleeping above you. I just can't process it. Right. It's not, it doesn't feel right with me. He goes, please, can you please come to the top part of the house? And we'll come to the bottom part and everything will be okay. The prophet Saddam said, Oh, Abu boy, he smiled. He said, the lower part is easier for me because people are constantly coming in to visit and ask their questions. So if I were up there and you were down here, you would be dealing with some difficulty. You know, you would be dealing with some difficulty. I don't want you to have to like put away all your stuff. Every time someone comes, I come downstairs, I take over the whole living room. Then they leave. I go upstairs five minutes later, someone else comes. He's like, it's just not practical. And you see here how the prophet, again, remarkable, remarkable like psychology. He's taking this beautiful spiritual intention from this person. And he's basically tailoring it and saying, you're right in feeling that way. But I'm telling you that this is not a sinful thing. And ultimately, it's way better for both of us if we just keep it the way it is. If we just keep it the way it is. So the prophet I'm responding with him with love. Okay. Then Abu boy, said, so. I dealt with it because he told me it's no problem. He goes, then that night my wife and I were up, and we were using a container of water to like you know drink from and, and wash from and all that. And he said, and the container broke. So again, these containers were oftentimes made out of like leather, animal skin. So he said it broke, and the water started to spread. And my wife and I took off all of our extra garments, like our 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 ridat, like they have um like a shawl, we took off our shawls and we took all of our blankets and we like sopped up all the water that we could out of fear that there would be a drip on the prophet's head. Cause look at that. Look at this. That's not going to hold water. Like that's definitely not going to hold water. Okay. I don't care if that's what Kanye's house looks like now. Right. That's definitely not going to hold water. Okay. If you've seen his house and you'll laugh, it was a funny joke. Okay. So, so then he said, so then he said, finally, he goes, when the water vessel broke and 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 the water was going to drip on his head and we sopped everything up and we laid there cold all night because medina can get cold at night by the way right the desert can get cold at night he said we lay there cold all night and we realized that living up there is just going to be too difficult for us like we're not going to be able to get it out of our heads we asked the prophet the next day we said Ya is it okay that we sleep on the bottom floor and you sleep on the top and the prophet said sure no problem he goes let's move my stuff up let's move your stuff back down a-okay and they were like, we're sorry. He goes, No, don't apologize. It's all good. Right? I like the top floor, actually. I like it. Right. What is this teaching us? What is this? What powerful lesson is taken from here? One of my teachers one time we were studying, and somebody, we were, we had a lot of our books, and he put the glass on top of the, the books, right? The Quran and the Hadith books. And my teacher stopped and he said, Take that off right now. He stopped in the middle of his sentence. Like, literally, it was like somebody taking something and just placing it on top quickly because he wanted to make space for his notebook. It wasn't a bad intention. He wasn't like, ha, ah, you know? So he put it on top of my teacher, Sheikh Ihab. I remember, I I'll never forget, we were studying moram, right? And he said, Take that off right now. And we were like, Everyone was like, What? And. We, you know, us were like typical Chicago kids, like surrounded by Daisy community. We're like, did he just put a t shirt on with a face on it or something? Like, what do you mean take that off right now, you know? <laughs> All the Daisies are like, yeah, 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 we feel like, So he took the glass down, and my teacher said something beautiful. He goes, You're never going to benefit from knowledge if you disrespect it. You're never going to benefit from those books if you don't respect them. Right. And again, it's not that he was being intentionally disrespectful, but even just that haphazard moment, you know? Even just the lack of awareness. To us, again, it's not for other people to diagnose within other people. But to us, it can be an indication. If something really matters. Anyone here ever worn like a nice new pair of shoes? Like the memes about like white Air Force Ones? Like you got a nice new pair of shoes? How do you act? How do you act? How do you walk? You walk like the earth is made of like... like I was going to say dirt, but that's actually true. You act like... You act like every single thing that your shoe is making contact with, new shoes, you act like everything is attacking you. Like you walk like you're just like, ah, watch out, right? Like there could be a person like 13 yards that falls down. You're like, chill, relax, right? These are new shoes, you know, or a new car, right? You act like the new car, oh my God, man, you get a new car and you're like, I mean, you're more concerned about that new car than you are holding your nephew who doesn't have neck muscles yet. Like, the nephew, you're like, is this how I got him? And they're like, put a hand. He's three hours old, you know? Rather, your new car, you're, like, outside with, like, silk clothes. You're a man, you're like, I can't wear them, so I might as well. That was another joke. Okay. Can't wear silk, guys. Okay, so. Just tough. Okay, so. I remember when I got my car, the car that's outside that's full of scratches and everything now. I'll tell you why it's full of scratches because I have a cat. Uh, but I'll tell you why I let it exist with scratches because the first weekend that I got it, there was a hailstorm. <laughs> I got, I remember I was in Tennessee. We were at someone's, it was it was a, it was a graduation party I didn't even want to go to. I'm sorry if you're watching. I didn't even want to go. <laughs> my wife convinced me, she so said, we have to go, right? It's like imam life. You have to go. So I went and, and, and they were like, yeah, it's going to hail. And it started hailing and I'm standing there. At the window. <laughs> First thing I did was I looked at all the gas stations around because that's like obviously shelter. So I'm like, I can drive this thing over there real quick. They all got, they were done. Everyone was looking at me. They're like, ha, huh? you know, like we already got it. You know, there's no spots available. So I just had, I had to resign myself to just dealing with the, the will of God. Right. And these, these hail, these giant, it seemed like they were cantaloupe sized. These giant <laughs> balls of hail were destroying my car. And i'm just looking there and i'm like and it's like single tear you know like you just and i remember i'll tell you something dude the pain that i felt at that moment was actually a problem the pain that i felt was what it was a problem i felt hurt i felt upset the function of the car was the same it wasn't even that bad there were literally two minor dings that you can't even see you can only see it in certain light but because of our love of something, we over-exaggerate things sometimes. Like, I love this car. I just got it. It had Bluetooth. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. Like, people were like, I was like, you want you connect, to connect your phone? They're like, yeah. Where's the cable? I'm like, "What? Well, what's a cable? This is the 21st century, bro. You know? I was like, tell Thomas Edison. I said, salam, you know? We don't need cables in this car. And I, I felt so much love towards it. That wallahi, like I felt upset that the car was being hurt, and then I felt upset that I felt upset. Spiritually, I said, who are you? You're, you're upset about this car having a couple dings on it. It works perfectly fine, and then you're driving home past bus stops where people who would die for your car are sitting in the cold, in the rain, in the heat, and you're upset because of what? You know. Sometimes you have to have a real conversation with yourself. Like, what are you so upset about? Sure, sure. Does it suck? Yeah. But relative to things, that's why the Prophet Wasallam said, if you ever feel upset with your life, he said, وَمْسِحْ <laughs> yatim.' Go and touch the head of an orphan. Pat. Literally, mesah means to wipe something. He said, go and pat the head of an orphan. Why? Because you think your life is so tough, go look at an orphan who's never met his parents and just ask, or her parents, and ask yourself, how tough is my life compared to this young boy's? You know, and maybe it's having kids, but man, when I watch videos for Islamic Relief and other organizations where they help orphans, it breaks you. What is it about them that they were given this draw in life? And what is it about me that I wasn't? What is it about my son that every night he gets to go to sleep with Baba cuddling with him? And what is it about them that they'll never know what that feels like? Did I do anything to earn that? No. Did they do anything to deserve that? No. That's why the prophet sold some. Again, he's not saying that your pain isn't real. He's not. He's just saying that if you compare your pain to those who have a different kind of pain, maybe you'll realize that your pain is something you can deal with, right? If I drive past the bus stop of somebody who's been waiting to get to work for 45 minutes and their bus ride is 45 minutes and their shift is nine hours and that's the first shift they're going to work that day and I'm complaining that my car has a little ding in it, maybe, Abdurrahman, you're kind of overreacting. Maybe there's a chance. And this is a bitter pill that no one wants to hear, by the way. But we all have to go. That's why I'm using myself as an example of the one who has this problem, right? So when this is going on, okay, when this is happening, I forgot how I even got here, subhanAllah. So the Prophet okay, oh, yes, this is how it happened. This is how we treat material possessions. How do we treat the example of the Prophet in our life? Like, do we feel pain when we don't follow his example? Or are we more attached to material things than we are to the Prophet Sosom's example? Look at how much respect they had for him. Look at how much respect they had for him. Like the two phrases that will be an indication that we need to work on ourselves is number one, it's only sunnah. And number two, it's just makruh. To translate for you guys, it's only sunnah means it's not an obligation. Just the Prophet did it. And it's only makruh means it's not haram. I don't get sin for it necessarily. It's just something that God and his messenger didn't like that much, which by the way, most of the things that are McCrew are actually Haram. There's just someone somewhere, some uncle that says makru, So we're like, we're going to go with it. Right. Okay. But the reality is that when we say these things, what are we doing? We're devaluing the example of the prophet. We're devaluing it. Right. Imagine if your car was being belted by hail just after the day you got it and someone walks up to you, it's only a car. How would you feel? right how would you feel you'd you'd be furious you know you just got new shoes or a new outfit and someone stains it it's only shoes relax of course what they're saying is literally true it is true that whatever xyz thing is only a sunnah it's true but what's the implication behind those words very good it's not important your shoes aren't important your car's not important that's not just not nice to say it's not nice to say but the implication we need to be worried about Look at how Abu ibn Sari was. Look at how his wife was. Look at how concerned they were about causing even a little bit of discomfort to the example of the Prophet Wasallam. The next thing that was amazing was how whenever the Prophet Wasallam would eat, obviously they're hosting him, they would send food. Whenever he would eat, he would send back down whatever he was done with. So they're hosting him, so they're obviously going to send him a lot what? A lot more than he needs to eat, right? So they send him more than he needs to eat. He sends back the rest, right, because they send like a you know a tray of food. So he's eating, and then what they would do is they would actually take, and they would eat from that. They would take whatever he didn't eat from, and they would eat from that. And they would, out of love for him, they would take their fingertips, and they would look at the plate, and they would see where his fingers were, and they would try to eat in the same places that he ate, out of love for the Prophet. Now, one time, they sent up a dish that had garlic. Garlic's delicious, right? Garlic is delicious. So he send it up, and they're excited. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's going to be good. He's going to like it. He sends back the food untouched and the garlic untouched. And they were like, oh no. Like, imagine how embarrassing that would be, right? And so they send back, he, they get the food back, and Abu Yuban again, we're talking about the one who was like, please sleep above us. And we're talking about the one who was like, sopping up water with every piece of cloth he had. How is he going to react to this? He goes to the Prophet and he said, Ya Rasulullah, he said, is garlic haram? <laughs> That's what he asked. He goes, is it haram? Literally he goes, Is it haram? Is it forbidden? The Prophet said, No. Then he says, Remember how he said, I swear by my mother and father? He goes, May my mother and father be ransomed for you. Which is again like a huge oath. Okay? <laughs> he says, I looked at the dinner and I didn't see a single trace of your hand. He goes, What prevented you from eating from it if the garlic's not haram? The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, He said, What? He said. Sorry. He said, No, it's not haram, but I dislike eating from it because it's offensive for other people when I talk to them. It's offensive. Like, you know, someone had garlic, you'll know. You know, someone's like, I had Italian for dinner. You're like, I know. What would you have for dessert? Like, I can't smell that, but I can smell what you have for dinner, right? And so he was so deeply aware and sensitive about offending people and, and, and putting people off that it wasn't a matter of whether it was like forbidden or not. He was concerned about perception. He was concerned about that. He didn't want to have that. He didn't want to inten- intentionally offend anybody. His social IQ was so high. The Prophet Salsam was the kind of person that would be able to plan three steps ahead to make sure that a person wasn't feeling out of place. That's just how he was. That's how the Prophet Salsam was. And this is what he exemplified. Now, one other thing happened, and we'll finish with this. One other thing happened in Medina. That was actually amazing. And this is going to be kind of like a big moment. So I want us all to kind of zone in for a second. Five more minutes and then we're done with this. Medina, many of us know Medina today to be a very beautiful place. It's peaceful. It's, it's, it's illuminated. Munawara, literally it's called Medina Munawara. It's the illuminated city. It's a place that has so much goodness. Like whenever people go to Medina, they always talk about how Medina is just like the best. They love it. Right? And if you've ever been, I see people nodding their heads. It's it is. And if you've ever heard of it or wanna go, like you're gonna love it, inshallah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's like it's like being in a city that the entire city is like therapy. Right? Mecca is like, you know, hustle and bustle, kinda breaks you down. You know, the four foot ten Malaysian woman who bowls you over and Tawaf. Like she's letting you know like I don't care about you, like I'm here for Allah, and everyone's there for Allah, and it doesn't matter that you drive what you drive back home or you have whatever position you have or you make X amount of dollars. Nobody gives anything for that. No one cares. They're there for Allah, and they're like, you better be here for Allah, otherwise why are you here? That's Mecca. For, for the arrogant Western world, like, we need that, right? We walk in, we're like, uh, personal space, please. They're like, personal what? <laughs> this is Allah's space. Like, there's no such thing as personal space. Get with it or get out. Like, that's how it is. Medina is like the rehab that you need after that. It's like seeing a counselor. It's like, you go there, you're like, Mecca was tough. And Medina's like, I know. But 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 you need it. You need it because it breaks it breaks down some of that entitlement. Right? Mecca breaks down some of that entitlement. I love Mecca personally. I love Medina, but I love Mecca because Mecca just reminds you, like, you're just a servant of God. That's all you are. Serve water to these people. They're all here for Allah. No one even cares who you are. They won't even remember your face. They're here for Allah. Right? You go to Medina, it's a little bit more slow. It's a little bit more chill. But Medina didn't always have that reputation. Yathrib before Medina actually was known to be a place in which everybody got sick. It was known to be that way. Some of the historians comment and they say it's because the water in Medina was known to be like not the cleanest. It had some elements of pollution in it. And this was historical. This was like centuries old to the point where whenever people who were from around Medina would show up to battle, the opposing army would make fun of them. They'd be like, y'all look sick. Oh, never mind. You're from Yathrib, right? Like, that'd be like their trash talk, right? So they would say that. So it's almost like how we talk from Dallas to like Houston people, right? I'm just like, where's (laughs) Sal? Sorry, Sal. I had to do it. He told me, he was like, I'm expecting one thing tonight about Houston, so I had to say it. I apologize, everyone from Houston. Just talk to Sal if you want to deal with it, okay? So... They would know Yathrib as this. And, and it happened. When they arrived in Medina, they moved there, everyone's on cloud nine, everyone's happy, and then people started to get sick. You know what, how bad it was? Abu Bakr as Siddiq, okay? If you want to talk about people that God is pleased with, look at the best friend of the Prophet, Sol-Siddiq. the only one who defended him the night he came back from Jerusalem. Everyone's telling him, there's no way it's possible. Abu Bakr is like, yeah, it is. He's like, there's no way you're possible. They're like, what does that even mean? You know, like, he's basically so defiantly standing next to the Prophet, like, best friend. Abu Bakr is so sick that Aisha narrates, she said in the hadith, Aisha said that I walked into my house and I see Abu Bakr, my father, lying on the ground, lying on the ground. Middle of the day, he's just lying on the ground. Guys, this isn't like sick, like I I have a headache right now, but I can still come here and teach and we can be, some of y'all probably are, I hear some coughing. That's, you know, that's us. You know, you guys ever heard of man flu? Right? When men get, like, a little bit sick, they act like they've been given the the terminal diagnosis. This sickness was, like, incapacitating these people. They couldn't walk. You know when you have such a high fever that you start to get delirious a little bit? I remember when I, I, recently I got so sick, subhanAllah, it was after Hajj or before Hajj, I forget. Probably after Hajj, but anyways, I got so sick that I remember I slept. Oh, no, you know what? It wasn't. It was on Eid. I got so sick on Eid that I didn't go to the prayer. I didn't even go, I couldn't. I slept all day. I woke up at 5 p.m. and I thought it was 5 a.m. I was so delirious. I was like, "Oh my god. I slept 36 hours." And then my wife comes home and she's like, "How are you feeling?" I'm like, and she's like, "What have you drank?" I'm like, "Nothing. Gatorade untouched, water untouched, everything untouched." Like that kind of sickness where you're just completely removed from yourself. That's what they were experiencing. So they would they would start to they would start to recite poems. They would start to recite poems. Abu Bakr said, "Every person wakes up next to their family with such high hopes." He said, "Everybody wakes up next to their family with such high hopes every morning. Good morning. What are you going to do today?" And then he said the next line. He said, "But death is closer to them than they realize." That's dark. That's like a Sylvia Plath poem. <laughs> That's like really dark, right? And then I she was like, "What? Like what's going on?" And then she went to another person. She said, "How are you, Ahmed bin Fuhaila?" How are you doing? He said, I'm meeting death before it comes to me. <laughs> they were like really in pain. And then another, I think it was Bilal, عنه, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Bilal. He, she went to him and said, how are you doing? Because he was sick and he goes, I can smell Mecca. He goes, I can see Mecca. I can see its mountains. I miss Mecca. Like he's talking about Mecca, right? They're all basically saying what? Why did we come? Why did we move here? We knew this place was a place of disease. We knew this place was good. We knew it was not going to be easy. We knew it was going to be hard. We knew it was going to be painful. Why on earth are we here? Look at us. We're lying on the ground. We can't even breathe. We can't even walk. What's wrong with us? We should go back. We should, we, we, we regret ever making this decision. Right? So the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam Aisha, went to him. And she said, Ya Rasulullah, look at what these people are saying. They're, they're, they're talking as if they regret joining you. They're saying things as if they regret coming with you. This big thing that we did. And the Prophet he, he looked at her and he said, they're so ill that they're unaware of what they're saying. They don't realize. He said, it's the fever that's making them say this. And then he raised his head towards the skies and he said, Oh Allah, bless Medina for us. He goes, bless everything in it. Bless its provision bless its soil, bless everything. Make Medina good to us. Make it healthy for us and get rid of this plague. Get rid of this disease for us. And then the Prophet said beautifully, he said, Medina, people don't realize it. He looked at Aish and he said, Medina is better for them. It's better for them. He said, if only they knew. He said, if a person leaves Medina because they don't like it, God will find somebody else to take their place. He goes, but if a person stays here and bears patiently with whatever difficulty they find, he goes, the reward for that is on the day of judgment, I personally will come with that person holding their hand to Allah. And I will tell Allah, oh, Allah, this one's with me. This one's with me. Y'all ever been VIP before? Seriously, y'all ever been VIP w- when in a place that you were not supposed to be? Y'all ever got like a business class upgrade or something? Okay. <laughs> we have, like two guys apparently who have, right? They're like, yeah, right? <laughs> no, if you've ever been given, or like someone that can give you a discount at a store or like someone that can take you into the lounge, right? Yeah, the lo- travel lounge, right? So there's like probably one person in this in this room with the Chase Sapphire Reserve. That means that he can bring every one of us in with him, right, or her. And, 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 and what do they do? They walk up to the counter and they just tell, they're with me. And just the feeling, what the anxiety just dissipates. Everything. Imagine the day of judgment. Allah says everyone's gonna be scrambling from each other. No one's gonna care. Not one person in here, who'd you come with? You came with your friends, your family? Y'all aren't gonna care about each other. I'm not trying to start fights, but y'all aren't gonna care about on the day of judgment, no one's gonna care. You're gonna be so concerned about yourself that it doesn't matter. Everyone, me, you, everybody. I'm going to say, guys, guys, you came to Roots Monday, right? Can you guys tell Allah that I, I, I did this? You're going to say, sorry, man, we, that was fun. The coffee was, but I got to worry about myself today. Well, that's what the Hadith says. Everyone's going to say, nafsi, nafsi. The only person that will take time to take your hand and walk you in with him is the Prophet. He's going to say, come with me. He'd go up to the gates of Jannah and say, add it to my list. Who is the person that does this? He says, the one who goes to Medina and bears the patiently. Powerful really powerful now this is amazing the prophet sallallahu Alaihi wasallam he's teaching us a very valuable principle how do we translate this to young professional life in america moving to medina was a command from god moving to medina was not like a, a relocation based off of preference it was a command from who from allah are there things that are commands from god that we're doing today you guys doing things that god commanded you to do anything is anyone doing anything that god commanded us to do we just prayed all right hopefully okay You're sitting here gaining knowledge. That's something. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask you on the real. Are some of those things hard? Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Okay. A lot of honesty. Let's keep, let's tone the honesty down a little bit. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) This is where you kind of say, right? It's like, yes, it's all hard, right? (laughs) It's so difficult. So some of those things are difficult. Yes. In fact, can I, can I, can I offer a, a way to, is it even possible that you wish you didn't have to do it? Honestly, is it possible that for those of us who wake up and pray Fajr, there are some mornings where we just wish that we didn't have to do it because you're so tired and so exhausted. There, that thought maybe crosses your mind, right? Is it possible that maybe like you're giving charity and as you're writing that check and that decimal is moving further to the right, there's a cat, you're like, oh, is it possible that when you're putting that hijab on that morning, you, like, wish you didn't have to do it? My wife, for her birthday, we just got her a spa day, and she got a massage, she got a mani-pedi, and she got a haircut, and she wears the hijab. So I was like, your haircut looks nice. She's like, I know. I was like, why don't you look happy? She's like, <laughs> you know, like, i got to schedule, like, 12 girls' parties now, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Look, everybody struggles. Everybody struggles. They were struggling. They were struggling, man. They were with the Prophet Wasallam. They were with the Prophet Wasallam. They were with the Prophet Wasallam, and they were struggling. They were begging the Prophet ﷺ, take us back. Take us back. Don't make that. We know that God told us to come, but don't make it a thing. Let's let's." Just rescind it, rewind it, let's go back to Mecca. The torture, the torture of Mecca, they're like, let's go back. This pain is too much. This is why the Prophet, you'll find three things that he teaches throughout his entire lesson hadith when you deal with things that you don't want to do. Number one, well, zero actually, number zero, doing something you don't want to do in religion is one of the quickest ways you can become close to Allah. It's one of the quickest ways. You know why? Because you don't have to ask yourself if you're sincere. You know you are. If you do something every day or every moment that you do it and you know inside of you it's a battle every single day, then you know that you can look to Allah and say, Allah, I'm only doing this for you. And that is a shortcut to sincerity that many of us wish we had. Many of us do things in religion and we do them for other reasons. But if I have to force myself to do something because I know at the end of the day, it's what God wants from me, at the end of the day, no matter how bad I don't want to do it, it's what God wants from me, then that is a, a, a it's like a shortcut to sincerity. It's like a fast pass to Allah. That's why the Prophet Wasallam he said, in order for you to accomplish this, you have to reshape your perspective. He said that, عَجَبًا لِأَمْرِ الْمُؤْمِنِ He said, how strange, how beautifully strange is the life or the the, the events of a believer. He said that there's only two kinds of things that happen to this person. Number one is either something good happens to them and they thank Allah for it. And when they thank Allah for it, do they get closer to Allah? Yes. He said, or something bad happens and it causes them difficulty and they're patient with it. And because they're patient with it, because they deal with it, then they get closer to Allah. Patience is a staircase to God that is only accessible to few. Not many people want to be patient. A lot of us want to opt out for the easier way or the different direction. Patience is the the path to Allah least taken. That's number one. Number two is he says, after reshaping your perspective, he says, understand that while you're doing that thing that you hate or while you're doing that thing that you wish you didn't have to do, they're in Medina lying on the ground sick. Killed over, probably getting nauseous, fever, wondering if they're going to die. Abu Bakr is not being... Abu Bakr is not a very dramatic person. If you read his life, he's not dramatic. And he's saying every day you wake up with your family and death is closer to you than your shoes. Right? Number two is that something that you can't see is happening for you. Maybe when you're doing that thing for Allah or when you're giving up that thing for Allah, you're doing it for Him or you're giving it up for Him, maybe, just maybe, subhanAllah, Allah is putting barakah in something else in your life that you would not have had otherwise. I remember sitting once with one of my friends who's in the multimillionaire bracket, right? And he he was telling me this. He said, I'm convinced that all this good that God is bringing to me, he used to donate a lot, a lot. And some of his friends didn't know why he donated that much. They're like, dude, this is, you're already in the, the better tax bracket. Like, stop. And he's like, I believe that the only reason God is giving me success in my business is because I'm conquering my desire to keep my money and I'm trying to give it away. He said, I believe that. So there's barakah being placed in it. That's why the Prophet ﷺ said, a believer does not experience any difficulty, even the prick of a thorn, except that Allah Ta'ala raises that person. And the third thing, subhanAllah, is that you'll grow at the end of it. You'll grow. As a result of doing what's uncomfortable, you become better you become stronger, you become a different version of yourself, but it doesn't happen right away. Anyone in here ever done something right and felt like you were being punished for it? Anybody? You did the right thing and you felt like you were being punished for it. It was hard. There was pain associated. Maybe there were tears. You felt like people were looking at you or judging you. You maybe declined a better offer. Maybe you looked at something that financially would have made a lot more sense, but spiritually, you know that it wasn't going to make sense and you took the route that was more spiritual, and you get there, and you're, you know, the place that you were going to rent to live in, you get kicked out of it, or they, they're like, oh, we found somebody else, or the place you were going to buy, somebody else bought it, or the, on the way to work for the first day, you took this job because you want to put your family near a good community, put your kids in a good school, be with people that are going to make you better in your faith, and the first day to work, you get a flat tire, and we're Muslim, so we're like, it's a sign, we're like M. Night Shyamalan, dude. Like, every time something happens, we're like, again, two guys, Zach out and I appreciate it. All right? I paid them to be here, right? They didn't get the silk one, though. But um, we're Muslims, so everything's a sign. We're like, oh, man, I got a flat tower on the way to work. Maybe I shouldn't have done what Allah wanted me to do. Maybe God is telling me not to do what He wanted me to do. It's like the interesting logic that we place in ourselves, right? But I'll never forget, subhanAllah, man. And I told you all this before. We were looking for a place to start roots. And I'm not going to ask because it makes me feel stupid and weird. But if Roots has ever done any good for you in your life, and it's done good for me, it took a long time to find a place. And we kept getting rejected. Like over and over and over again. To the point where I was like, I need to find a realtor with a less foreign name to go and look for us because people are just saying no off the bat. And subhanAllah, we found this place. And I remember asking one of my teachers, I said, why am I being rejected? I'm trying to do good work. And he said, when you do the right thing... That's when it becomes tough. When you do the wrong thing, it becomes easy. It's interesting. When you do the right thing, we think, oh, if I do the right thing, Allah will make it easier. Or if you do the right thing, Allah Ta'ala will make sure that you're sincere. And you're going to go through pain and difficulty. And there's going to be moments of doubt and conflict. But you just have to persevere. Because when you do, you eventually find a place like this. And you eventually build a community like this and you eventually start to be able to provide benefit like this. But this couldn't happen if we didn't go through that phase of rejection. It couldn't. So whatever good you're doing, if there's difficulty in it, keep going. Keep trying. Know that Allah is going to place pleasure for you in that path. Know that he's going to put it there. Only if you keep going. But if you stop early, the whole experience will be nothing but pain. We ask Allah to give us strength. We ask Allah to give us the ability to be sincere. We ask Allah to give us the ability to do what pleases Him. No matter how difficult it is on us, we ask Allah to make our hearts strong enough to handle all that He asks of us. We ask Allah to pardon us and forgive us for our shortcomings. We ask Allah to cure us if we have any illnesses or diseases, both bodily or spiritual. We ask Allah to give us barakah and blessing in our risk. We ask Allah wa ta'ala to grant us the ability to do everything that pleases him and follow the way of his Prophet Muhammad sallallahu <laughs> We ask Allah to grant love and respect and reverence towards our messenger in a way that we never ever disrespect him, whether intentionally or inadvertently. And we always make him the shining light of our lives. Amin ya rabbal alameen. Barakallahu feekum, everybody. I apologize again for going late. I really, really do apologize. But you could see tonight we wanted to get to a certain point. Jazakumullah khairan. Inshallah, I'll see you guys next week. alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.